0: Welcome to the Bible Idiots Podcast. We're Chris and Emily Danielson, and it is Wednesday. Wednesday is always a special day of the week because we bring you our long-form teaching. And this week is a special week, being Holy Week, leading up to, of course, Easter Sunday. Today, we're going to be bringing to you a message from Pastor Chris. He takes us to the book of Matthew, chapter 27, and it is the story of the crucifixion on Calvary, and the title of the message is Seven Awesome Miracles of Calvary. Yes, that's right. Throughout the story, there's several incredible miracles that take place, and Chris is going to break those down for us. So now, here's Pastor Chris.
1: There are seven awesome miracles of Calvary. Please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew 27, 45 through 54. And I read in Jesus' name, starting in verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion of those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we just ask that thee be, these be your words that you speak to your children through them now. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. So today, the, the mighty miracles of Calvary, the awesome miracles of Calvary, some of them are from heaven above, some of them are from the earth beneath, and some of them are under the earth. And it's just awesome when you sit and look at it, how all seven are in a class all by themselves. They're, they're wonders. It's just It's an amazing thing. And so we're going to take about 30 minutes this morning. We're just going to go through them one by one. And two weeks from now is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And next week is Palm Sunday. So I wanted to take a moment for you to see Calvary and absorb it and to dwell on some of these things over the next few weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday. And the first miracle that we see it's also found in Luke chapter 23 verse 44 is darkness over all the earth for three hours this is an absolute miracle and it was about the six hour, so it's at high noon and there's darkness over all the earth until about three o'clock in the afternoon it says the Sun was darkened that is the first miracle of the cross at high noon God blotted out the Sun it was darkness like that in the land that lasted for, th- for three days in Egypt back in the consecration of the law. Do you remember that? And it was a darkness that they said could be felt. It was a miracle of God. This was not an eclipse. An eclipse lasts but a very few, you know, short time, a few minutes. This darkness lasted for three hours. An eclipse of the sun would be caused by the passing of the moon between the earth and the sun. This is in the Passover season. We know that the moon is usually fallen on the opposite side of the earth from the sun. An eclipse is gradually presented before the eye of the earth. This was sudden. Suddenly the whole earth is darkened. And then no less suddenly does the light shine again after the passing of the third hour. That's a miracle of God. An intervention from heaven and an awesome silence for those three hours was frightening. Would have been terrible. We have light at the flick of the switch. That ain't the way it was back then. See the business around the cross what was going down around the cross was very significant. The soldiers were busy raising the three who were crucified, right? They were busy gambling at the foot of Jesus for his garments in Matthew 27:35. The throng is passing by and what are they doing? They they're they're wagging their heads, they're shaking their finger, they're they're hauling, you know, they they're taunting Jesus, they're throwing insults at him. The high priests—what are they doing? They're busy criticizing Pilate for the superscription that was nailed above his head. Jesus, here—you know—here's the King of the Jews. Remember all that? All that's going down, and then boom—darkness, completely silent. No longer anybody's throwing any insults. All that was heard was the dripping of the blood of the wounds of the Lord, and it was a frightful silence, so much so that it says that the people smote their breasts, they beat their breasts. In Matthew 27, 54, it says the people greatly feared. So what's the meaning of that miracle, the blotting out of the sun? I think it might have been the covering of the agony of the Lord when he paid the price of atoning redemption for our salvation. I spoke to you guys in September about the white noise of the cross. Jesus died for my sin on the cross. <laughs> and We need to take a time at least once a year and remember what actually went down. See, there's a mystery in that darkness to, into which the human heart and the mind, I don't think, can enter. When God smote his son, when Isaiah 53 describes it, smitten of God and afflicted. When God turned his face away and the son cried out, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think we have the mind to fathom the depths of the mystery of the suffering of God's son for our sins. And God shut it down. He just shut it out. He blotted out the sun. And so immense a way and so terrible was the payment of our debt of death and sin, God just shut it off. Now, I don't know. We don't know. We don't understand. God just blotted it out and darkened the face of the sun. That's the first mystery, and that's the first miracle of Calvary. But it gets more intense. The second one is the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom that's important second one we see jesus cried out with a loud voice he yielded up his spirit and behold the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom verses 50 and 51 the second mighty miracle was the tearing of the veil now, the old rabbis in the Talmud, they say that the veil was a hand thick. It was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide. And the rabbis in the Talmud say it took 300 priests to raise it up, to lift it up. Josephus tells us, so strong and mighty was that veil that a team of horses could not pull it. Yet at the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, it is finished. And God took the veil and tore it from top to bottom. It was not seized by the hands of men from the bottom to the top because they couldn't do it. It was done by the hands of God from the top to the bottom. Nor did the earthquake, which we're going to talk about in a minute, nor did that render it torn. You know, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn from from in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks did split. That's Matthew 27, 51 of our text today. After the tearing of the veil, the very earth shook and the rocks were split. And it would have been an amazing thing for the earthquake to tear the, the veil and leave the building intact, wouldn't it, and undamaged? It was an absolute miracle of God of the tearing of the veil, but it also had huge significance. Stay with me. You see, there's a marvelous and incomparable, you can't hardly even fathom it, lesson for us. The tabernacle and the temple were built to show the cast outwardness of sinful man and the unapproachable holiness of God. God can't be where we are with sin, right? That's how he created this whole thing. Listen to the layout of the temple. Around it was a wall. Inside the court of the Gentiles, another middle wall partition. And beyond the inside of the court of Israel, another wall. And the court of the priests. Beyond the court of the priest was a brazen altar. Then the other obstruction, a door into the holy place. And walking through the holy place with its seven-branched lampstand, its table of showbread, before the veil the golden altar of prayer and incense, then there was the veil itself. It blocked the entrance into the presence of God. You with me? And beyond the veil was what was called the Holy of Holies, where the priest once a year could go in, the high priest, he's the only one who could go in. Because behind the veil in the Holy of Holies sat the Ark of the Covenant looking down upon the mercy seat. God in Christ tore the veil wide open and every eye could look sweeping into the very presence of the Holy of Holies. This is incredible because anywhere now is a good place to be with the Lord. You get that? The partition is broken down in Christ. And now any man anywhere without a priest or a mediator, you don't need somebody else can walk himself into the very presence of God and speak to the Lord himself. That means that anywhere is as good a place to address and call upon the name of the Lord. I tell you that every Sunday, whether you're sitting, whether you're kneeling, whether you're at your kitchen counter, or whether you're in one of the finest cathedrals in all of the world. It's the same now, because the veil was torn in two. God has been opened In the death and sacrifice of jesus christ our lord and savior the author of hebrews writes it like this having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest the very holy of holies by the blood of jesus by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil what's the veil Jesus' flesh the tearing of the flesh of our lord is the tearing of that veil When we have communion, we break the body of Christ and we do this in remembrance of him. Is it all making sense? Is it coming together? Hebrews author goes on to say, By which we are invited to come boldly into the presence of God's throne of grace. We come boldly into the Lord's throne like children. Like when your children come to you. It's amazing. The tearing of the veil, our entrance into the very presence of God. That's the second mighty miracle of the cross. The third great miracle of Calvary, and the earth did quake and the rocks were split at the very voice of the Son of God. It all goes down at the very voice of Jesus. When he shouted his words of victory, it is finished! Not they did this to me, but the whole plan of God because of his great love for you and me it was done the sacrifice was made the very earth responded why because in the giving of the law that condemns us all no man has kept the law to its perfection except for Jesus Christ all have sinned all have come up short in the expectations for the glory of God in the law in its giving with Moses in the tablets what happened lightning flashed right and the heavens were filled, and the thunder was God's voice. And the wrath of the Almighty shook Mount Sinai. It quaked, it trembled, and rocks were split. This is the law of God by which man, when he is tried, is condemned unto death. You and me, tried by the law, were toast. But on Calvary, at the cross, the love and the grace and the mercy of God were poured out. In an atoning redemption for us. And the earth replied. The earth responded. In verse 51 of your text today, all the tremors of Mount Sinai were absorbed in Mount Calvary, and we are freed and were forgiven by his grace in his blood. The earth responds to the Lord who shouts, it is finished. You want to know something? Something kind of cool? That's kind of a forerunner to the promise of the regeneration of the earth one glorious and and climactic and consuming day that is still in front of us. In the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says that all creation labors and travail because of the curse that until the day when the Lord chooses the saints for us to be manifested, the sons of God appear in glory and in victory. When the Lord shouted, it is finished, the earth shook in response in wonder and in glory of the regeneration that is yet to come. Then God will literally come down and dwell with us and bring forth a new heaven and a new earth and there will be no more curses. For those of you taking notes and study this later in your life groups, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Enjoy it. The fourth miracle of Calvary. And the graves were opened, and the saints that slept arose. The fourth miracle, the opening of the graves. Now, what does this say? It tells me that this earthquake was intelligent. That it was a living thing. That the nature had gone beyond itself in nature, and it was selective. The earthquake opened the graves, that is, of the saints. Just the saints. This godly man, that godly woman, those who had fallen asleep in the Lord, their graves were opened. that select few. What a marvelous miracle of God about his promises and what is yet to be demonstrated and what Christ is and has done. Look at that, the graves were open. You saw a trailer for the movie Risen. We're gonna play it Friday night. This is a preview, it's an incredible. Incredible thing. Now keep in mind, this is Friday afternoon. The Sabbath comes at sundown. No work is permitted on the Sabbath. So those graves were open to view Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was an open exhibition of the ableness and power of our Lord to break the bonds of death in the grave. It was straight up for everybody to see. They were open, exhibited, plain to be seen for view. And a second thing that is in line with the breaking open of the prison doors of of, of hell, of Hades. Check out Revelation 1 when you get a chance. Our Lord Christ, when he entered the realm of the dead, he entered into hell, into Hades. The earth shook, the grave were open, and our Lord came, master of sin and death in the grave. He now has the keys. He now has the victory. He now has the power over it all. And God is showing up one Friday afternoon When he is finishing the plan and he's laying it out for everybody, here is the dealio. Watch what I can do. Take note. See, John wrote it like this when he saw the exalted and resurrected Lord in Revelation chapter 1. Now, I'm going to give you just snippets from verses 9 through 18. You'll have to look it up later. But these are some of the words that John wrote in that little passage. I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, fear not. He said, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I live forevermore. And I have the keys for hell and of death, and my hands are the keys of the grave and of death. This is an open exhibition of God's power through Jesus Christ. When he entered the realm of the dead, he enters into Hades, the graves are open, Hades prison's doors are open, and God's saints resurrected walk out. And I think that's part of the fifth marvelous miracle at Calvary. And many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. And then here's the miracle, the fifth miracle. And went into the holy city and appeared unto many. One is the resurrection of the bodies of the saints. The other is going into the city. I, I, I count them as two different miracles. And it's translated here, they appeared unto many. It's one of the most marvelous things in the book of God. To me, it's two miracles. See, in the scholarly breakdown of this passage, wordsmiths who are much smarter than me, in the original language, point out how important it is to understand the word. Here's the, here's the word. You ready? Any fan, any fan ease the end. Any fan ease the end. Any fan ease the end. That's it. Any fan ease the end. I'm sticking with that one. That word means to declare, to manifest, to show forth. In the passive voice, the subject is what? It's acted on. So that means that those who were raised from the dead, they manifested themselves, they showed themselves, they made themselves known. After the resurrection of our Lord, these saints did. Ephan and Ethian, they made themselves known, they showed themselves who they were. And that's the second miracle of it. That's all that is said. The silence of scripture right here is as wondrous as the miracle itself. Who were these folks? Who were these saints who were raised from the dead? And had they just died? Had they been dead for generations? What did they look like? How were they dressed? Did they walk down the street or did they just kind of float around? You know, did did they knock at the door? Did they just suddenly appear? How were they known? It says they made themselves known. Any It was intuitive, spiritual knowledge. It, they, they, people knew them. How did the disciples know that it was Elisha and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17? We're not, we're not told exactly. The scriptures never say. But God somehow has hidden from our eyes these secrets of the mysteries of the life that is yet to come. Now thousands of times do I wish I had the answers, but I don't. When I study through Revelation, I, you get to the kind of the center of the book, you think, well, when I get to the resurrection and the millennium and a few, you know, the heaven, it'll be easier. And it's not. Sometimes it's a lot harder. I held memorial services on Friday morning and another one Friday afternoon. And when you do two funerals in one day, I think it, maybe it, 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 it affects you. Thousands of things pressed on my heart that I wish I knew God hides it from our eyes. And in the law of Moses, we are forbidden on the pain of death to try to find answers among the dead. Although people in their curiosity pursue that, God says, no, trust me, you're not supposed to know. Another one, spiritual body. That's a contradictory term, spiritual body. It's contradictory. The spirit is one thing, the body is another. And to say spiritual body is an unsound description. We don't know. God hides it from our eyes. So marvelous is a miracle that's happening right here that one thing we do know is that the Apostle Paul writes for us is like an order of the resurrection of bodies. So in our quest to try to know, there are a few little things we can know. I'll share with you one of them here. But overall, we just trust God. And in our human nature, we forget. We let stuff gloss over. How many of you have read that before and have never taken the time like we are this morning to look at it? How many times do we get to Easter Sunday? Yeah, it's going to be good ham. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. And we forget what really went down here. Here's an interpretation that I think Paul writes in order of our resurrection. You ready? Paul writes this, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall be all made alive, but every one of us in his own order. And the word there is like an army passing. Like, here's a platoon, here's a platoon, here's another one. You know, that that's the order that he's talking about. Then he gives four orders. First, Christ is raised from the dead. Second, the first fruits. These are the saints that were raised from the dead and went into the holy city we just talked about. They made themselves known, and themselves were known to other people. Third, they are... Uh, th- those of us who are with Christ at His coming, and then the Lord shall, with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we then shall be changed. So you get the order: one, two, three, four, and the second one is here, the saints that appeared into the city of Jerusalem into the holy city. First Christ, the second is the marvel- marvelous miracle at Calvary we're talking about. and then the rest comes later. So, God's eternal presence and power showed itself in these bodies. He raised them from the dead, and they appeared as themselves unto people. I don't get that. I can't understand it. All I know is God says that he marks the dust of his saints. In some glorious day, he shall speak into that dust and raise it to himself for glory, for his glory. Who's that? That's those of us who know Jesus. That's you. That's me. That's ourselves these then will make themselves know and appear the bodies of the saints. It's a miracle of God. It belongs in his life-giving, awesome power and eternal dominion. And we get to be a part of it in our order. And that's pretty awesome. Miracle number six. They didn't break Jesus' legs and pierced him with blood and water coming forth. John describes it as a miracle in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 33. Miracle number six, the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first, then the second of the criminals. But here's what John said, when they came to Jesus, they saw he was dead already, and they break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear uh, did what the word is, "nuso." so, he knew him. That is the only time in the Bible the word is used, knew so. It means to stab, it means to pierce, it means to thrust. One of the so- soldiers took his iron spear and stabbed, thrust it into the Lord Jesus. Why were they breaking legs? They were breaking legs because sometimes people could hang there for days because they'd push up with their legs to get more air in their lungs. Crucifixion was a way of suffocation. The Old Testament says the Messiah, when he's purged, for, not a bone in his body will be broke. During the scourging, Jesus never had a bone broken. That means at the cross, the normal procedure to break the legs wasn't going to happen to our Lord and Savior, and it didn't. They didn't break his legs. Because when they pierced him, John writes, what he felt was hardly to believe, so wondrous was the sight that when a soldier pulled the spear out of the heart of the Lord Jesus, it was followed by a flood of water and of blood. Now, how does John think on that? In his book, he writes, Who is he that overcomes the world? It is he that believes in Jesus, the Son of God. This is he, Jesus Christ, that he came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. To John, it was a miracle that he saw blood, the crimson. You know, blood of life poured out for us as an actual atonement for our actual sins. Jesus died a sacrificial death, but John also said, I saw the blood of his life poured out, but also water. Water in the Bible is a symbol of a cleansing word. You are cleansed through the word which I have spoken unto you, said the Lord. He has sanctified and cleansed the church with the washing of water by the word. The word of God symbolized in the water. And also we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit in God in the washing of regeneration. The spirit pulled out of his side came blood and water. Atoning blood, crimson life, crimson covering our life. The water, the gospel message cleanses us from all of our sins. And the spirit of God that regenerates us, it makes us new. It makes us new. There's a song by Phil Wickham called True Love. Maybe we'll play it next Sunday for you. And here's one of the powerful lines in that song. It says, when blood and water hits the ground, worlds we couldn't move came crashing down. We are free and made alive the day that true love died. Free and made alive when our true love, true love died. The seventh miracle, the last one, I think is the miracle of the preaching of the cross. The preaching of the gospel of the cross. Hey, you realize that the cross was an instrument of execution, right? It's the same thing with the Romans as what an electric chair would be to us today. It was a sign in the day of Roman Empire of horrible execution for a felon, a traitor, a murderer. They impaled through the abdomen, they stabbed and then held up a victim. The Romans invented crucifixion. Sometimes the sufferer would stay on there for three, four, five days in unspeakable agony. That's why the business of the cross became a, where you break the legs then. It's a sign of unbelievable suffering and a penalty for a crime and yet that cross is the symbol of the saving grace of God the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 614 God forbid that I should glory that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ then he wrote to the church in Corinth I refuse to know no other thing except Jesus Christ and him crucified that's a miracle the understanding of what God did, and knowing the power of that over our lives. It's an amazing thing that the instrument of execution on which Christ died would be on the top of our churches, high lifted up, the cross around our necks on a gold chain, a symbol, a charm bracelet, an embellishment of a church in a stained glass window. The cross of Jesus Christ. In first century, putting it in our world, we'd have an electric chair sitting up there. You understand? It's amazing that we understand the sacrifice that was made for us and how God chose to do that. This is the gospel of our salvation, the cross on which Jesus was crucified and did die. It's a miracle. It's a miracle of God. When Jesus goes to the cross, having lived the sinless life, as a perfect sacrifice for sins, to become the lamb to take away the sins of the world. There's so much that's there that the next two weeks as we get ready to celebrate Resurrection Sunday as his children, as his saints, as the ones who are redeemed, remember what all went down there. And he says, do this in remembrance of me when we take the communion. And it's so unbelievably awesome that it doesn't stay there. Our sins were paid for, but then Jesus rises again. And two weeks from today, we're going to celebrate that fact. Let's stand together and pray. Our Lord in heaven, never are we more humbled than when we stand at the foot of the cross. You did this for me. You did this for my brothers and sisters in this room. There has been no other soul lost in this world, yet he would have suffered and died just for me. Oh, wonderful Savior, what can we do to show you our profound and everlasting thanksgiving and gratitude for saving us, Lord, for dying for us, for paying our debt and penalty of sin? What can we do? It ain't enough. It ain't enough. So we offer you, Lord, the humble, sacrifice, and thankfulness of our lives. And with infinite love, we welcome and await your coming. We look for you to return to take us, Lord. And to those that have made that decision in their heart, and to those that need to, Lord, speak to them and confirm them that this is the greatest step they'll ever receive in their life. We love you, Jesus.
0: Thanks for tuning in to our Sunday message. To donate, request prayer, or to contact Pastor Chris, you can write to Lifehouse Church at P.O. Box 661 Abilene, Kansas 67410 or go online at lifehouse-church.com. On behalf of the entire congregation, thanks again for your support.